Happy birthday, Joe. Thank you. Did you know I was going to start that way? I did not. How old are you? Uh, do, you am... do you want to disclose? Is sure. That a, is that a rude question? It's, I, I don't perceive it to be. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why, and I didn't think that you would perceive it to be. Hmm. And because of what I knew that you would think, it wasn't rude of me. In other words, my intentions were not rude. And successfully so. Yeah. Uh, I am 52, which is to say I'm done with my 52nd year. Hmm. And uh, so I'm on to the 53rd year. Uh, I, I'm glad that you clarified. As a so we avoided, we avoided a kind of Y2K debate there with your... Yeah. Well, mind. I like to, you know, I want to be clear. Right. And so it is interesting that we, you know, like you turn one, that means you're done with the first year. You, it's behind you. That's in the logbook. Well, it's just how many years old are you? And yeah, you're, and I'm you're 52 not, years old. You're not 52 years old until you've, you've gone through 52 years. Exactly. Until you finish that right. 52nd year. So... Like you have 52 52 growth rings that we could count somewhere somewhere in there. Please do not cut my leg off. Um, (laughs) As of uh, 1233 Eastern time Mm -hmm. last night. uh, Oh, you know your time and everything. That's what it says on the birth certificate, one of them that I have. I think it's the one from the hospital. Is that that a short form or a long form? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that the one from the long form one from the state. Uh, of Maine has that information on it, it mm. but I I also have I, and I do have one of those, but I but I also have the one from Madigan Memorial Hospital, which is a hospital I was born in in Holton, Maine, and I I think it says the time on there. My recollection is it okay. says twelve thirty three a.m. Of course, now I want to go check it. If but. we could get more of these vital statistics out here, if we could get your mother's maiden name, yeah, uh, your would destroy all personal privacy. The name I have. of your first could, pet, yeah, right. Yeah, if we get all of this out there, then it's and it was just so this hasn't been. This hasn't been a, a very uh, odd and multi-year therapeutic process. This has been a very slow rolling <laughs> docs of, so I'm, <laughs> all my personal information, you just go listen, just take notes. Right. So, I, you know, I'm 47. I turned 47 in April. Mm, congrats. And that's feeling, um, I don't know if I feel, I don't know if I feel old, but, you know, and my kids both, you know, my, my last child, my second child just went off to college. Yeah. And that's a big big life transition mm-hmm. um it is indeed how are you so, feeling but but do you so so but you're older than i am five uh, well, almost about, five years about five years yeah um, give or take do, do i seem like a young twerp to you or anything like, <laughs> <do you? laughs> not at all and and it's funny because we i'm sure there was a point in our lives when had we known each other then which we didn't but had we um uh, that that would have seemed like a bigger gap of time uh, because of the high school cohort difference. Yeah. We went, I was out of high school before you started high school. And those right. are like musical tastes and other cultural references. And that, right. like a lot happens, I think, to people in that four years in their brain that stays with them for many years afterward. True. And, True. um, and so that would be, it'd be interesting. Like if I, if I had known you in my, in my mid twenties and you were 20. Yeah. That might have seemed like a bigger gap, but no, you do not seem like a young whippersnapper. Wait, I don't. I, I don't think the gap was ever as large as it was when you were four years old, though. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, because you were purely notional at, at that. You were you I were guess. pure noose or noos at that point. Mm. So good for you. <laughs> yeah, this is why people tune in for this particular then you, internet program, Joe. Then you're, uh, you know, as you as your soul approached. Uh, instantiation here you sipped from the river Lethe and uh, forgot all of your pasts and <laughs> and then slowly 
uh, descended into the world. It's mm. a, that's a great thing. Welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, this is, I feel like um, on your birthday, you're doing the welcoming. and I, <laughs> this is I'm your, here. It's, you know, I was already here. This is your day. This is your day to shine. Uh, uh, okay. And this is what I got you. So we're, we're what, what I feel like what I got you is, is we're recording this. You're, I should use the flashlight on my phone. Why is that? To shine. Oh, so it's my day to shine. No, so, no, no. From an internal radiance. Oh, okay. Hey, Darcy. Um, you know, we got uh, before we get so we got a little bit of mailbag. I had something I wanted to talk about, and you did too. And oh. I, I don't know if we're going to get to it though. Okay, we can always do it another show. What I, is the thing you want? Like to... this is just the way the show is now. We just we just. Hit record. We start talking about stuff. Yeah. Shake loose all the casual listeners. Exactly. Um, you know, we really hone it down to that, that, uh, that diamond hard edge of commitment. <laughs> um, we, we did get a tweet, which was to the effect of, and I don't have it in front of me, that um, Kung Fu Panda. Mm is a far greater film than Shutter Island. And that, I think, the uh, I'm just going out on a limb here. I think that person was trying to bait you. When I saw that, I Lots laughed. Lots of people try to bait me. I saw that, and I laughed, and I thought, oh, that's just, he's just kidding. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that, the writer of that. Because yeah. they, because, and the reason, is it, it's apples and oranges. I mean, they're just two totally different kinds of, right, of right. artistic projects. And so, right. to say one's better than the other, I just don't. Either way, in either direction, to me, doesn't sound particularly apt. I did write a blog post way back when saying that Shutter Island was our greatest film, which implies a certain kind of, like, ordering. But that's not really what I meant. I mean, I, I, you uh, know, just to say something is the greatest, it has, it's really a reflection of my own experience with the thing, right? I just love it when things are great. I love were, being moved in a, in a, in a deep way. And, and it just feels amazing. Like, when you see something you know, that is so different from what you experienced before the thing. And you, you see the world in a new way. And, and you, so that's just what great art can do. And so it feels like the greatest. And, and I feel like um, when my daughter was very, very young, hmm. um, I don't know if she was five or something like that. She, she went through this phase where for whatever reason, um, this is not like a prodigy thing or anything, but she was just really into Mozart. Like she'd been exposed to it and, and like, you know, just wanted to keep listening to it. We got her all the, there was one thing you could get with all, with the CDs of like everything Mozart ever wrote or something mm. like that. And she just loved it. And she had this little bust of Mozart and she just, she had this notebook she kept that I, I printed out some Wikipedia articles about Mozart. She Neat. just, she liked Amadeus. She was totally into it. Maybe I think she, that's great. Six, seven, I don't know. Totally into it. Right. And at some point we were listening to something on the radio where someone was describing uh, Mendelssohn and and suggested that perhaps Mendelssohn was an even more was even more precocious, was she even more of a prodigy hmm. than Mozart? Did she bristle at that? Or? She bristled in in the in the fanniest fan type way. <laughs> so she, she stands for Mozart. So she, she really was irritated. Oh, she immediately cultivated an active dislike for Mendelssohn. <laughs> And in her own, like, you know, uh, youthful, very that. youthful way, like even invented a story where they, uh, where they didn't like it, where, where Mendelssohn was, was actively um, disliking and jealous of Mozart. Wow. This is sort of like a Newton-Leibniz throwdown. Like, yeah. who's, who really gave us the calculus right. and da 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 Wow. And I'm reminded of, I think it was Al Franken a long time ago wrote this book about um, 
maybe it was his Rush Limbaugh book or something, where he described a kind of patriotism, a particular kind of patriotism he, he, that um, a, a particular flavor of it, which is akin to the way that a very young child loves their parents, mm. right? Which is um, that they can do no wrong, that um, that any kind of like discussion of them, which doesn't recognize their inherent greatness, is an insult and immediately activates the <laughs> immediately activates like the emotional. Uh, um, defense mechanisms, right? You it, like you, you must oppose on that basis your fail. The, this person's failure to acknowledge, right? right. Which I thought was like, the like greatness I saw, of the thing, and I saw it in my own, in my own daughter. Although it, I think she had a metacognitive awareness of of because she would tell these funny stories about Mendelssohn saying "I don't like you anymore" and blowing out a candle, and then it appeared in like Mozart's candle. You know, that, <laughs> this, this kind of like pre-internet communication between them. Um, right. oh, and, <laughs> um, but but uh, so I, so I had this like. Um, it, it it resonated that um, that the way a, um, a small child might love their parents is the way that some people love their country. Mm. Um, which it seems, you know, I mean, like all of but all of us have that, to, you know, because we don't reflect on everything that we do. Right. So a lot of us are reflexively attached to certain things sure. that that it activates our kind of threat responses when 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 those things themselves are under threat. It's kind mm-hmm. of a secondary threat. So I'm sure I have some of those too. Um, but I try to be aware that, like, you know, this this can be a silly way to respond to things. And, and it so, sounds like, in addition to that, objectively speaking, Shutter Island is the best film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> there was, I do feel like when I was in high school and I was discovering um, music that moved me intellectually in various ways, kind of for the first time. And, you know, like any insufferable kid who, mm. who does that you're like oh no one's ever felt this way before or oh my god like i'm uh, this is a window into and there were things like you know there were certain like pink floyd and led zeppelin and certain kinds of classical music and certain kinds of like yeah. new age type music and I, all kinds of stuff that i was that i was into that you know and, and but of course i'm still someone who revels in this kind of like sure um in in these kinds of uh uh, felt experiences like i love the way that good art can move you but back then i, I didn't really have a a, a, not a language but a, a um an experience basis to understand just how contextual and contingent these feelings were and mm. that you know although like i if you if you talk to me like intellectually i could have said yeah sure someone else feels this way about you know rush right. and for example and like i don't rush just doesn't move me right yeah. um but i can understand that maybe it moves somebody you know and now that you've lived longer you've had enough experiences of that feeling of other things that moved you in that way right that don't move others that don't move others and you see if you are you know um if you try to be observant about the world around you and people around you as other uh subjects of importance yeah um you you will start to have that insight but i did have i don't know if you had this so you know when i was maybe middle school early high school most kids seem to be moved by like top 40 music, especially where I live, kind of suburban, whatever, suburban South Carolina. And, um, and, and so whatever was popular at the time. And, and when I discovered, you know, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, REM, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and you know, other stuff, you know, punk and other things. Um, I, I thought it was so great you know, some of these things just, like I said, they just moved me in a very deep way and, and, and 
you know, caused kind of profound, in my mind, thinking, rethinking of the world. Like I'm seeing things differently. Now, there are other kids who like this music too. And that what they really celebrated the fact that, that, that loving this distinguished them from other people. Hmm. Right. I mean, they, I don't, I don't know exactly the thought process and I don't want to attribute it, but it was this delighting and being alternative kind of thing. Mm. Remember alternative culture, right? Right. And I never really had that. Like, as soon as I heard these things, I wanted everybody to like them. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, this is so amazing. Like, you know, if, if you don't love this, it's because you haven't really listened to it. You haven't heard it before. Yeah, it's not the alternative. It's like the main thing. A little bit of an evangelist in me. Mm. Right. So mm. I never, I never loved being different. And yet I love these things that clearly made me a little bit different and weird. <laughs> hmm. Right. So it was a very. But not on that basis. That wasn't the thing that that wasn't the feature of them, at least so far as you're aware. That wasn't the feature of them that made them that fun and desirable and, and great. Right. Right. That's not what I wasn't attracted and, to. And them you because... suspect that might have been the case for some other people, that the feature of them that made them great yeah. would really have been deflated if suddenly everyone had loved them. I know at least some people because they said that. Right. I mean, at least some people yeah. were, were that way. And, and there's some kids that's who... really true. I mean, mm -hmm. you might think it's true of yourself and you might be wrong. Right. It could be you would love it just as much, even if it got really popular. Right. But you, it's hard to know because that's a counterfactual. It's. It... And everybody at that age, right, is trying to feels like they need to become something yeah, and wants to do it on their own terms. That right? whole differentiation, but belonging. I mean, I'm not a parent, but, and I, and my recollections are even dimmer than yours are because I'm further away from <laughs> yeah, that time. They're five, years, we've five years dimmer and it's, exactly. and, it, and, and there's exponential decay. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, my brain worms and whatnot. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the complicated, this, the fact that you're trying to differentiate yourself from your family and, and, but it also can feel very threatening, and so you can sometimes try to, too hard to belong. Yeah, uh, to get back that feeling of safety. Yeah, um, and isn't that is it sort of a very young children must go through this like a physical kind of fear process where they're like they're a little bit further from their parent, and then they run back or something. Right, like that. right. And so it was sort of like an emotional psych psycho spiritual version of that mm. when you're like. 13, 12, 13, 14 again. And then maybe when you're 16, 17, 18 again. <laughs> yeah. Maybe forever. I don't know. But it just seems like that process of both the need to differentiate, but the but dealing with the anxieties that that can produce mm -hmm. of feeling like isolated and that, and how do I stop that feeling? Right. So that I feel safe while I also, I'm a different person. Or is my, you know, I, I feel like, you know, or, is it that my isolation is what I'm attached to? That's part of my identity for whatever reason. Yeah, that that could, and I that want people could, to see me as an isolated person. Yeah, and that could happen, right? You, your identity formation could could start to include isolatedness as a thing you view as part of your character or something mm -hmm. like that. And the community where I grew up in in the schools I went to, I think were, um, or at least. I don't want to say totally characterized, but but fairly heavily characterized by an authoritarian bent. You mm. know, the politics and the religion and, you know, the dominant cultural mores of the area. So were kind of conforming and belonging was viewed actually with, with more of a – had more of a premium attached yeah, to Yeah, than maybe people who grew up elsewhere in the country. and um, Maybe. And um, – and so, so one reaction to that, understandable reaction is, you know, screw the whole system and, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm different. I love being different because all these people like, and I, I just recall having this sense of, 
of if only people could experience this, they would they would not feel that way, right? In other words, I didn't want to be necessarily isolated. Uh, I didn't want that, but my tastes were um, were isolating me, or at least identifying me with a with a smaller culture. Yeah, that I wasn't. I didn't want to embrace the, my identity in a smaller culture. I wanted transformation, <laughs> right? And and I thought this is like surely right. no one could experience this the way I am, and come out the other side and still you know, be very narrow and rigid in their views. So your your the atypicality of your taste you thought was just a function of like the the diffusion rate. Yeah. Um it was a function that, of experience. That's uh, that uh thing about, you know, the the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Right. So you just felt like you were on a forward edge. Well, once people hear it, they will really like it. I don't want to yeah, I don't it's, it's not um I don't want to speak in like evolutionary ter- social evolutionary terms or anything. It's just that like, you know, uh, if if you could experience this as I did, then you would you would agree. You would see the world differently. Yeah, because how could you not? Because it's this is really right. great. Because I've also seen and consumed your culture. You know, I'm of it, but seeing this, I have a wider view, and you would too. Right now, this is naive and ridiculous in all kinds of ways. So I'm, yeah. not, we're, <laughs> I'm not defending. I'm just I'm, it's interesting to think back and to yeah. think about. Because they're, you know, people are drinking this sort of tepid puddle water and you're offering them this glass of cool, uh, crystalline, uh, some kind of juice. I guess. Maybe yeah. even with some fu- fizzy bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and funny, I told you I didn't drink as a high school student. Mm. Okay. And you mean alcohol? Yeah. I did drink fluids. I assumed that, but I just wanted to make sure rather than assume in an ongoing way, I thought I would just inquire. I know how open your mind is and you were open to the possibilities probably that that one could exist without consuming fluids. Sure. I mean, who knows? The world is a mysterious place, right, Joe? Well, as is said in Kung Fu Panda of the Dragon Warrior, (laughs) um, (laughs) that he could survive uh, for months on end with nothing but the dew, uh, a drop of dew from a blade of grass. So, right. uh, you know, I'm not, again, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to just find out what the facts are. That's, so. I, I, it's possible, like in your mind, it is possible that I, from, from puberty around age 12 or something until 17, I, uh, subsisted in a, in a lotus position, um, subsisting on the condensation, which, uh, gathered around my head, felt r- ran down my nose and, yeah. and maybe fell onto Just my tongue. Just the moisture in the air was enough right. to sustain you. Right. Like those um, trees in California. Yeah, it's possible. Hmm. Well, this is, this is quality content. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the one who brought up not drinking in high school. Well, this is, I, I'm just thinking of all the ways that I was, you know, I just think back to not being, you have me in a, you have me in a throwback state of mind. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe talking about repping things mm. um, and identities and getting older and being younger and the young person's state of mind. So what was that? What, the, the tweet about Kung Fu Panda and Shutter Island wasn't only about Shutter Island. It was also relating that. Didn't it relate that someone like someone it, that person knew saw on another podcast? Someone had said, oh, I, I don't right, have it in front right. of me, so I don't know exactly. Like we moved them to tears or they cried as a yeah yeah it has some real emotional moments to it for Mm -hmm. sure i think the world is really wonderful when you realize how many things that you don't relate to move deeply other people Mm. 
it just explodes. It makes the world so much the, more dynamic and it vivid, really does. doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. Um, and, and so instead of filling you with consternation, like, how can you like this crap? <laughs> You're like, that's amazing that you like this. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And, and and I think it's easier to do when, when you let go of trying to define yourself to others based on what you tell others that you like. Or that you dislike. I mean, there's been that too. I've been teased uh, about, uh, there, was, there was that email we got teasing me about the Tom York thing. About what? The, about, about the Tom York thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is like, and that was a, I, I think in jest, who knows. But um, uh, there's also this, you know, I've been thinking about the kind of critical mindset. Um, you know, we, when we talk about movies, like with other people or books or music, um, there, there is a kind of mindset that, that is bent toward identifying what's wrong with the thing, mm-hmm. um, which I don't really have. I think I, I think I, I can, there's stuff I don't like for sure. It's not to my taste. Um, but when I love things, it is kind of oftentimes in spite of the flaws that I'm willing to say are there. Like, I don't think you can produce a, a piece of art that, that is because I think, a, well, okay. A flaw oftentimes is, seen as a disconformity with a certain point of view about what the thing should be. And so oftentimes flaws disappear when you look more and more from the perspective of what the person was trying to say and you celebrate the fact that they are trying to say that thing. And so anything which is the kind of authentic expression of an author or set of authors can be a source of real joy. That's not to say that the kind of criticism that we um, sometimes talk about, which is, you know, how, how does this make me think about life and how do I agree with that or disagree with that or, you know, what other experiences point away from it or toward it. But as to the piece of art itself, I think getting, looking at it from the internal point of view of the mm. author mm. is very rewarding. Mm. And so when I love things, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm like harmonizing in that way. And that's what I, I enjoy that harmonization. Especially when you, at first, um, find it hard to do that that in a way that means it's an opportunity for a more rewarding version of that experience yeah like if your encounter with the work leaves you really puzzling why something is there or why it's done a certain way um then the process of trying to imagine what it would be like to be the creator who for whom that makes all the sense in the world yeah like what is it about seeing it this way that would that would make it feel perfect right or great um and of course that person maybe could be interviewed and someone could ask them and they might say oh yeah that was a part that didn't quite work out as well as i thought it would i mean you can hear that but that's and that would be interesting to hear at the same time you can try to again imagine what it would be like to be that the person who who engaged in that creative act and for whom it made sense at, in that moment of creating it to do it in that way. And if, you, and if it's difficult for you to do that at first, then there's a real uh, growth possibility. I mean, in, in a way, you can, when you're really enjoying something and it, it seems to be, you know, no, nothing in it prompts that thought of puzzlement for you. Where mm-hmm. you, you just enjoy it and you think it's really great. Uh, well, was there anything? Were there any, you know, any shortcomings? No, really great. Right. <laughs> okay, um, 
you could there too you could try to imagine what it's like to be the person who made that thing but it might it might actually be less interesting to do that because it just seems so thoroughly correct already to you mm-hmm. hmm. you know i i was uh there's this new um, album coming out from Lori Anderson and a group of others. She's a composer and artist and performance artist and quite famous. Just, just amazing. Yeah, Lori Anderson's been doing work for years. I know, and years. I know. And I, I just like put two and two together because I've been listening to her recent stuff and just realized like she was married to Lou Reed for, you know, a long time oh, and, wow. and had this amazing uh, career um, spanning decades of, of just really outstanding work. And, yeah. and so, you know, sometimes you encounter an artist in one setting and then you, kind of realize you already knew them in another setting and, and you know, the synapses in your brain meet for some reason. Uh, but she, so she's got this new, um, it's an improvisational piece coming out, I think on the Folkways, Smithsonian Folkways label soon hmm. um, with uh, a couple of others. And I forget exactly who they are. One is a Tibetan artist, which is kind of putting the Tibetan book of the dead to, to music. And the couple pieces that have been released already are just, you know, mind bogglingly outstanding, you know, but, to me, right, right, from wh- from where I'm coming from now, and and then of course it made me go back and listen to um, another thing she'd done recently, Landfall, which is about, um, well, notionally about the uh, Hurricane Sandy striking New York, and, mm. and a lot of the thoughts. She, it's it's really more about kind of the experience of being of having this destructive. Um, I think the, 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 of of having destruction visited upon you, mm. and how to think about that, and. And I had I had heard a track of this on my like New Music Friday thing from Spotify, and I liked it, but it didn't, you know, I didn't. And maybe I listened to part of it. It's with Kronos Quartet, and it's really good. Um, but you know, and then I went on to other things. And after listening to this new thing, I said, you know, I should go back and listen to the whole thing because I started to realize that the whole is more than some of its parts um, with her, and just really, I mean, man, it was just so great. And what is and it I called just, again? Landfall. Okay. Yeah, it's really, but you know, that's just for me, you know, for, I, I, I hesitate to say, because, you know, anytime someone it's maybe talking about your favorite art is a little bit like talking about your dreams, like yeah. nobody really wants to hear it. And, and also <laughs> like the it's experience, to convey. the experience of sharing it and then having it not land with others is isolating. And I, yeah, I suppose it could be like, well, that's, you know, one initial emotion you might have about yeah. it. Um, and I don't know, I've learned that over the years, like it's okay. Like, just because I love it doesn't mean anybody else has to like it. Doesn't, sure. You know, and um, which is easy to say. It's one of those, one of those, one of the many things in life that's easy to say and hard to feel. <laughs> but easier to feel with experience. I think so. And easier to feel. It with, can be. If you open yourself to that experience and, and, and you get through it and it's okay. Right. Then you can, it'll be, you've had the experience of it being okay. Oh, and it's, I think it's much easier to feel if you practice some amount of like non-attachment meaning not getting so attached to this is part of my identity. Mm, this, is right. really, this is who I really am. Yeah. Like the, the rejection of the thing is not a rejection of you. Right. Right. Um, which is also very easy to say, very obvious to say. And yet, you know, if you are introspective enough, you can pick out even very intelligent, like, you know, right. mature people have this, you know, have some version of um, uh, don't talk about my daddy that way. We have a remarkable <laughs> right? capacity to uh to render things existential right Mm. that don't need to be Mm -hmm. uh 
because very little needs to be, probably. I mean, you know, some food, some uh, beverage, as we were talking about <laughs> earlier. All right. Um, you know, maybe some protection from the harshest elements. Yeah. Um, you know, not having disease fell you, like mm-hmm. not getting a scratch and then some infection and then you're dead. Um, but, but we're really good. It's, I guess it's part of the meaning-making apparatus. That Absolutely one of the meanings is. you can make is that this is part of me. That if this isn't there, I'm not there. Yeah, one very powerful facility we have within us is the one which weaves experience into stories, right? Weaves input into stories. And so you can, and so one of the stories you can make is simply that a thing is existentially important. Right. And then it is. But all until, of those things until you tell the story where it's not. All of those things you mentioned, like, you know, you have to have food, you have to have water, you have to be protected from the elements, you know, these are all part of safety. Like, you know, you want to be safe in a way. Um, but of course you won't always be, you know, none of us, we will, we will get sick. We will get right. old, right? All, all these things are going to happen. I mean, in, in trying to articulate sort of layers of what's existentially necessary. Right. I think there are some things that are closer to the metal of like. <laughs> right. Of continued experience. Yeah. <laughs> right. you keep, keep keeping body and soul together. It's like you really do need to eat some stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just, uh, I think that's pretty, pretty basic. A lot of my research is about how, you know, a lot of my interests are um, the, the nature of these stories as, as they pertain to law for the, for the most part, but maybe rules more generally. And, um, and, and maybe the intellect, you know, when we think about what the intellect is, maybe it's that part of us which recognizes these things as stories, or as I call them models, right? Mm. But, but they, you know, if you can recognize the constructed nature of it, then that's kind of an intellectual way of dealing with the thing. Um, and I actually think that, that biologically, so when you from see- what I've been reading, that that is one distinctive, that may be, I'm going to say it's distinctively human. I don't know about all other critters, but at least among primates, um, this, this ability to, um, to, uh, um, think, uh, what's the, what, uh, recursively, right. To understand that you've got a model and then to embed it is mm. that, that may be really, really important. When you use the word intellectual, it, it, Like one way, one reason you might use the word intellectual is to contrast it from emotional. Right. Um, another reason you might use the word intellectual is simply to emphasize the, a reasoning component. Mm-hmm. Wh- what is it about the, that word that made it the right one for you for that it's, a- assertion? Well, I, I'm just thinking about having, um, having in mind a story or model, however you want to think about it, but some, com- some constructed thing like all of a reality and then holding it in your mind and using it, understanding that it is that, that it is a model or that so it is you have a, a model story. of the self that includes that the self is a model maker. Yeah. So it's like a meta, it's a meta move or, or a model of, you know, government and the schoolhouse rocks model that we've talked about before. Right. You know? Yeah. It could be models of all kinds right. of things, but and, you, and, and, but having the insight that you yourself are a model maker, having that be poly- yeah. part of your model of yourself. Yeah. Um, and then realizing that yourself is also another thing that you're making yeah. models of, like it's a it's a kind of detachment, or an ability to sort of step outside, and look back and see, oh, you know, right, uh, that's a thing I can do, which of course implies it's a thing I can undo, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, or redo, or do differently, 
Um, it's a, it, it does feel like intellect in the sense of reasoning, but it also feels to me, it's, it, it seems to me to have a deep emotional component to it. Mm -hmm. Um, that it's not just reason. It's also emotion. It's also feeling, Mm -hmm. um, which so are not, interpreting. I'm kind of struggling for the right. The feelings words themselves are physical realities, right? Which are interpreted. Which we interpret, right? Right. And, um, and so and, I think it's like less loaded. So when we say things like the self is an illusion or law is an illusion or these things, I, I think that word, like it, it, um, you know, it, ha- it. I mean, it's on its face. It's trying to assert those things aren't real, which I think is is unnecessarily attacking of of people's perceptions of things right. because because it, it doesn't. It's it's not that things you know aren't real. It it's that well t- take the schoolhouse rocks thing right the legislature courts executive you know and how a bill becomes a law. Um, that's what we mean by schoolhouse rock. Everybody, yeah, yeah. everybody knows this, right? We yeah. don't need to talk about it. Everybody listen. To I'm this just show. a bill. <laughs> I'm um, only a bill. Like. To, to use that, like, so so here's the the way that, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm using the right word intellect here, um, but to be aware of, to be aware of one's, of one's own subjectivity there is to use that model to answer certain questions and then to, real, to realize that it's a model and therefore it has, you know, it doesn't completely describe social reality and there may be situations where you need to go underneath. So, oh, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm using legislature here like a black box, but there may be times when I need a more detailed model of the legislature in order to right. use it in the way that I want to use it, right? Yep. And so it's it's that awareness of um, the subjective nature of any particular model of reality, whether it's social reality or reality itself, that I'm kind of pointing to here. Uh, like, a, yeah, there's a there's a there's a plasticity. Um, to, I'm I'm thinking of uh, it's in my brain because of the this week in seminar we talked about this paper by Fred Schauer from 1987 called Precedent, mm-hmm. and he um, along the way um, he uh, talks about what he for purposes of this paper um, contrasts as um, a n- naturalism and its legal counterpart formalism and mm-hmm. conceptual uh, excuse me nominalism yeah uh, as opposed to naturalism right. nominalism and it's uh, none of le- these are related to naturism and it, <laughs> to be clear right indeed okay um and its legal counterpart uh, uh realism uh that the the plasticity of this sort of naturalist nominalist continuum if you imagine those as po- poles Right. And sort of where is, where, how do we think about reality? Yeah. And is it somewhere in between those? And does it depend on the subject matter? Like, I think probably more naturalist about, in terms of the status of entities in the world, probably more naturalist about, you know, rocks and trees and such. Yeah. And probably more nominalist about complex human institutions, like Mm -hmm. legal institutions. But, um, which kind of tracks the um, physical stance and the intentional stance of Daniel Dennett in a way, right? That, hmm. you know, when we're thinking about human institutions, we think about these kinds of, we switch to this kind of decision-making, rational decision-making model, or yeah. we tend toward those things. We can also include emotions and, and sure. irrationality, but but it's this kind of decision tree kind of approach to it rather than, you know, taking the physical stance is, is, is to kind of have a model of, of, uh, of, um, yeah, here I'm hesitating, but, but kind of default physical reality acting upon particles and things. Yeah, and then when you take that, 
that physical stance and apply it to, or when you, when you, when you are more resolutely naturalist and you apply it to things like those complex human institutions, it just seems, uh, speaking personally, it just seems jarringly reductionist. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're simplifying so much out to, so that you stay within the terms of the, um, the way of speaking and describing things and making predictions about things that it's like, ugh, you've, there's so much you've left out mm-hmm. of the picture that it's no longer helpful. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I do think the same thing is going on that, um, in each case we're developing these kinds of yes. models of things. And, uh, but, but it's the, what I think he does great is, is to distinguish the nature of these, of these models. Mm. And even like the physical, <laughs> Our physical model is just a model. And Neil Seth out of uh, the UK has these, you know, just amazing descriptions of, of consciousness. So we, in the last, and this is what I'm kind of working on this stuff, but like in the last like uh, 25, 20, about the last 20 years, there's been an explosion of understanding about consciousness um, in psychology that, mm. you know, this field that we never thought, I mean, that a lot of people thought was impenetrable is, has now has, has results in it. And, mm. um, this idea that we're living out this, he calls it like a hallucination, right? You know, that reality, what, what, what is reality is like a, a self-induced hallucination, which happens to be like super useful, right? <laughs> and you can, you know, I mean, Daniel Dennett's another one who's been, he's got this multiple drafts model. I don't, we're not, we should do a whole thing about consciousness one day, I think. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's interesting you brought up your, your class because one of the things I did want to talk about, and, and I think we should just preview it, kind of how we preview talking about seminars. And okay. You remember when we did that, we previewed it, and then we actually did the show on it? Okay. Maybe that's our new, maybe that's the new motif here. Oh, okay. We kind of dip into something a little bit. So what do you, what do you, I, so I, I, what, about five hours ago, you said there was a thing you wanted to talk yeah. about, but you weren't sure we were going to get to it. Yes. And that, we, that, that's this. That's this. It's a thing that you're about to mention. Yes, yeah. Okay. I, I, I just want to make think, tra- keep track of where we were. Yeah. So, of course, people, you know, can can look on the little um, scoreboard sheet that we ship with every episode, and they can sure. kind of track things the way that Absolutely. you do. Absolutely, as you do, like a hurricane tracker, or like a uh, like there used to be the thing in the newspaper where you could kind of keep track of the presidential elections. Oh yeah. I, that's I have a memory of that from when I was a small kid that maybe huh. maybe everybody had in the newspaper one of these things with the state. I don't know. I don't know how it worked. But what's really amazing, if you listen to this backward, it's also the sports announcers for a cricket match. That's the weirdest part. Mm. Anywho, mm. you were saying. Um, backward and forward, maybe, you know, one of them seems like cause and effect and the other doesn't. But maybe, maybe it's just all part of the same thing. Right. Maybe right? it's just a big sticky wicket. Yeah. Um, we should do a show about our approach to constructing and delivering classes. Because huh. you're teaching a, a fascinating class this semester, I know, on... Uh, stare decisis. And, Are you implying and that antitrust is not fascinating? No, no, I, I would include that because you know I, t- <laughs> I teach I teach property, I teach land use. Um, I would think my, my the the class that's closest to my scholarship is modern American legal theory or mm-hmm. jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taught a course in legislation and regulation. I've taught a course in information regulation, and uh, I developed an undergraduate class I call Foundations of American Law. So I've, I've put together a number of classes, yeah, I, and I do all my own materials in these classes. But you know, in the first few years, I did pick a, a textbook. The first couple of years, I started teaching, so I have some experience with that too. I thought it would be fascinating just to talk about the different classes that we've taught, kind of how we put them together, how we approach, like what is our when we're deciding like to how to put together a syllabus, what materials to use, what are we thinking we're trying to do? Mm, I think that would be a really fun and interesting conversation. I would like that a lot. And I don't know if we'll get a guest for that or not. Maybe it'll just be another, maybe we're just going to keep doing this, just you and me. Mm. 
there you go. I don't know. I don't know either. Um, we had at least one bit of feedback saying they're, they're liking these shows that are just you and me. Yes. And I think all the, um, I wrote an, I wrote a little algorithm, uh, so that all the emails that are full of invective denouncing us <laughs> for not having guests are in, automatically sent to spam. Oh, really? Yeah. So is that why when you forwarded me the mailbag, I didn't see any of those? The, exactly. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to attack us, if you want to heap invective, if you want, if you want to tear choices, us down. You probably should just do it on Twitter. <laughs> exactly, because that's the, my my algorithm doesn't uh, doesn't reach that far. No, because I can see that directly. Joe can't keep that from me. My my writ doesn't run that far. Mm. So I thought so that that's I think we should just put that in abeyance and do that in another show. Okay. Since we spent the first uh, 40, 40 minutes, I don't know, talking about this and that. I don't know. Yeah. Um. I don't even. How do I even describe what we were doing? Doesn't really matter. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Doesn't. Does it? Um, so uh, let's let's talk about a few interesting letters that we got. Oh, because okay. we get letters, don't we, Joe? We do. We did get some letters. These were not these were not filtered out by the anti-invective algorithm. So what? What? How? How shall we proceed? How far, how far back do we go? Well, for, these are from the since the last time we talked about emails. These mm-hmm. are the ones we've received. Okay, and we're going to talk about three of them. There are three of them. Okay. How would you like to do this? Um, I would like, I'm taking off my glasses. Uh, As even, have I. <laughs> even though I wear these um, progressive lenses now, I don't need to. Oh. Still, it's more comfortable to take them off for some reason. Interesting. Um, health corner. I'm also having, Joe, I'm, ha- I'm having uh, pre-ventricular contractions. What? Oh. It, this is just health corner. It's, is it uh are you saying that you figured they they were uh, diagnosed? No, no, by me. Yes, they, yes, they were. They were diagnosed. Oh, because <laughs> your your visit to that health professional is coming up. It yeah, I just I'm having yet. a routine physical coming up. Right, right, right. But I've been having these heart palpitations all of a sudden, and, and they are quite frequent, and, and it's their preventricular contractions. I can tell because I've I have um, Googled. Oh, okay. Good and for you. and uh, I can actually see the trace on my watch. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I love that you're able to self-diagnose in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing to worry about. Okay. So I may never go to the doctor again. All right. I, I hope that the, at some point they use those electric paddles on you, though. Because I would just I just want to hear what that's about. If, if you, they use that on me. If you're aware me, of it while It would it's be happening. a very, very bad day. If, when you get the paddles used on you. Um, well, you're making assumptions about, like, how strong the, the zap is and such. I'm I'm being much more open and fluid about the d- precise circumstances. I don't think anybody ever puts the paddles on anybody on anyone else and says, you know what, they need just a tad, just a little touch of that. First just time a- for everything, my friend. <laughs> All right. I uh, do like though you people. Just for context, listeners, um, I am a person who, and though it's been some time since I've done this because they're not uh, as uh, they're not as popular in your household objects, right? Um, Nine volt batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if you put both of the contacts on your tongue and it, it's this fun little sparky feeling and metal flavor, it's great. I love that. But it's been a long time since I've done that. So that might be part of what motivates my interest in getting, having you shocked with the defibrillator. I'm having trouble here, Joe. What's the trouble? Because I, I'm in the uh, hashtag email feedback yeah. channel on Slack. And of course you posted all the new email feedback in the hashtag articles channel on yeah. Slack. Yeah. 
Are you P- just mixing things up? Uh, well, is, it, is this a is they're this a PDFs? Mistake? They don't. They're not. That email Slack channel was used to get populated automatically. The email would like get forwarded there, and then that stopped working. Yeah, maybe I can hook that up again. I don't. I don't know. So I didn't want to confuse. I felt like that was confusing to put new email things there that weren't from that forwarding mechanism. Okay. So I just put it in art in articles as okay. PDFs. I was looking for an email that we got a while ago that I, I that I I don't feel like we responded to, and I responded to that person. I don't normally do this, but they had asked for a link to the um, article on crime and torture that we mentioned. You remember that way back when? I don't remember that. Yeah, you know, and, and then I but but now I'm feeling like we have, and I said and I and I said I don't normally do this, but like you'd ask for this, and we, I know we won't get to the email feedback for a while, but here's what we were talking about. And then I said, but the, the rest of the feedback is great and we'll get to it. And I feel like I'm, I can't remember now because I'm 47. Right. Whether we got to it. I feel like. And I don't, and it's definitely not in the three that you're going to talk about. No. So, so we may have to go back and pick that up at some point. I, I invite you to go back and look at whatever you would like to go back and look at. Okay. I'm, I, 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 here, here's my proposal. You set aside a day to going through all the old feedback and, and making a spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> Where in one column is the feedback, and the the in another column, of course, is the name of the sender. Yeah, um, we'll have another column for any other vital information or statistics we have about the sender. Okay, uh, and Cre- then a little creepy, and then we'll have a, a column for keywords and tags. And I, you should construct a series of tags which will oh, identify nice. it. Yeah, and then the last column is uh, episode number. Okay, uh, second to last. That's the penultimate column because the ultimate column will contain uh, a timestamp. That way we can keep track of when each bit of feedback uh, was responded to. I think that's I think that's great uh, as a proposal. Yeah, that's my proposal. Um, I, I officially reject your proposal. Oh, is this um, the but last... it really was fun to hear about. Is this the last episode then? It's what? Is this the last episode then? No, it's I'm I'm simply not going to set aside a day to because do... this, that this is a condition of, of my continuing to do the podcast. Oh, then it is the last episode. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> If we were a professional show, we might have something like that. Uh, no doubt. We, uh, and that would be created by one of the professional staff. It mm-hmm. wouldn't be created by the talent. That's <laughs> us. We're the talent. Are, are, are we, we would have, if we were, we would have staff <laughs> to do that. And we don't have staff. I'm pretty sure it would be a staff talent. Yeah, we, we would be staff talent. Uh, <laughs> okay. So where do you want to start? Go ahead. Uh, that's go, what I've already asked go, you. Go ahead, caller. Uh, I've already asked you that, so I'm not going to pretend that I have that I've not asked you that already. Okay. I have already asked you. I think you, you should that. start with the first one. Uh, okay. This is uh listener Nick. N- listener listener Nick, yeah. T- hit me. What do you got? What what is listener Nick? Well, have one here? one uh, You're truth- not going to read the whole thing. Huh? You're not going to read the whole thing. You want me to read the whole thing? No, you I mean you can summarize it. I it's mean, a, what, it's a longish email, but yeah, you can Yeah, it is, but so he so he made two main points. The first point was laying a big truth bomb on us about some of the mechanics of how tipping works at uh, you know, restaurants that are run on t- uh, that run with servers getting tips, but in particular ways it was like the thing where the restaurant collects the tip Mm-hmm. And I wasn't quite sure what that phrase meant. So I think when you and I were talking before about DoorDash, which, by the way, has not yet changed its policy. It said it was going to. I saw a news item just the other day. They have not yet made any change to their policy. So it seems like those announcements they made were to get everyone off their back. 
Speaking um, speaking of age 47, mm. so, you know, I heard an advertisement for DoorDash on another podcast. Oh. And completely not remembering that we had actually discussed DoorDash. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Let me let me just see what they do here. Let me just let me just download the app and see. Like, that they, is do, hilarious. Do, do they deliver interesting stuff, or is it just like you know chain stuff? Like, what is it? Does it because you know I'm not altogether happy with our local, at least one of our local options. But mm. there's another one that we mentioned recently that yeah. maybe you could. Like, I don't. We haven't done a lot of delivery lately, so none of this really matters. Right. And then and then suddenly it dawned on me. Oh yeah, that's that's the that's the company we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> see, this is why we need spreadsheets, Joe. Yes, and I... That never would have happened. Look, if someone I'm, had been doing their job, that never would have happened. I am not going to uh, <laughs> gainsay the notion that with, with support staff, all of these would be better. I yeah. don't... I can hardly disagree. Okay, so you were saying... <laughs> uh, listener Nick is trying to explain, and, and I say that try, not because he doesn't succeed. There are details here, but I... Because I never worked in this industry, I never worked in food service in a restaurant or anything like that. I don't, I don't understand how the c- conventional view of tipping, where there's like you pay the bill to the restaurant, yeah, and they're getting that money, right. and then you pay a tip, and that's to the server. And that's the server's money. And we were contrasting that with what DoorDash seemed to be doing. And listener Nick is explaining, well, actually, what restaurants in regular everyday experience do is much the same as what DoorDash does. But to be clear, he didn't say, well, actually. Because that's a smear. That's a smear, right? (laughs) It is a smear? He he didn't, well, actually us. He didn't actually us. You're you're 100% right. And I didn't mean to say it as if it were someone smearing us. (laughs) Well, you didn't do it in this voice. Listener Nick came and said, well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I apologize. You've now got me feeling very (laughs) self-conscious. I don't know. know. I'm trying to be – I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. He was very helpful. He wrote this really interesting paragraph about how tips (laughs) are done at restaurants, which I read – and I still don't quite well. There's there's a comprehend in it. the United States. There is a there's a federal minimum wage of uh, he says seven dollars and thirty five cents an hour. Does that sound right to you? It, it's it's crazy low. Yeah, but there's a lower minimum wage yes. for tipped for, employees for, for at, at maybe at restaurants. And I, I'm, I haven't studied this, so I don't know how, exactly. I've how never it's defined. studied it, nor did I work in this area. But so I, do I don't know, have the lived experience of it right. either. So servers at restaurants um, who are who receive tips can be paid a minimum of $2.13 an hour by the employer and they can keep their tips, right? Right. But, but there's a requirement were... that the tips plus the two thirteen must equal seven thirty five, And so the... Um, uh, so if someone were, were being... If someone were working that way and never got tipped, their employer would have to make up some difference there. Right. And so in that sense the tip they get is going toward making up some minimum number. Right. And that is, in effect, what DoorDash could say it was doing. So, so if, if you go to a restaurant and, and it's a low-tip environment, you could, um, such that, you know, you think the person is not getting $5.20 of tips per hour, uh, by not tipping, you are, if you were going to tip a buck, which would, would bring them to something between two thirty-five, two fifty. Uh, 213 and 735 an hour. Um, all that would basically go to the employer in the sense that if you hadn't tipped, the employer would have to make up that entire difference to the employee. Right. And so this is, yes, so he's drawing a, um, not not just a comparison, saying this is what DoorDash is doing. 
Right. And I think the difference and the reason that I do, I'm not sure I agree, but I'm also not sure I disagree. I'm not sure I agree with the idea that that what DoorDash is doing is the same. Because in the context of a restaurant where you go and you sit down and you get the bill for the food, and that is the restaurant's share of the money, and then the money you leave is the tip for the server, right? Right. There's not, um, in the DoorDash example, there's actually three things happening, not just those two things happening. In the DoorDash example, you've got, of course the restaurant's getting paid, then there's this service charge, then there's a tip. And so figuring out how these things interrelate and what the word tip conveys right. about who's actually getting something above and beyond some minimum that's required, right? Um, it, the, the fact that the restaurant is getting paid over here on the side, in the, in the regular example of going into the restaurant, sitting down and eating and paying your bill, right, that's, there is no service fee in addition that sort of muddies the water of figuring out who's From the getting perspective what and why. of the tipper. Well, I, I still think, though, that, you know, at a restaurant, there's a, there's a little line down under the total which says tip. And, you, and people may which not. Which you can fill out or not. You're saying on like a charge bill. Like yeah. if you get, if you use a credit card. Yeah. There's a thing that says tip. I yeah, mean, if it, they just bring you your check to tell you how much it costs, there's nothing on there that says tip. No. If the, it when just they, tells you when they, the, bring, when they bring the initial bill. That's right. Yeah. So you, you, you have to pay that. Yeah. And then anything you leave beyond that, you, psychologically, subjectively, you feel like you're giving to the person yeah, who just like with the server. Just like with DoorDash. And, but, and, and I think that, um, uh, I don't know. I, I, our, our conversation, I, you know, was, was partly about how one way to look at this is DoorDash is kind of internalizing the bad tip insurance business. Yes, that is how you described it before. And in a way, that's what the restaurant by, uh, is required to do by federal law. Because of this minimum wage uh, that has the two components to it. Yeah. There's the lower variable, but you also have to meet the higher variable. And the assumption is in most circumstances that would be met. Right. So the employer isn't doing anything because you, on on average over the hour, you got that level. Yeah. The $5, whatever that makes up. Yeah, they're insuring against bad tips, which is also a way of insuring against employers calling you a tipped employee in a low tip in, uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a protection against that as well. But. And, and it, so, so when we were talking before about whether what DoorDash was doing was deceptive or not, I suppose that to the degree that you can show that what it's doing maps very closely onto what goes on behind the scenes as between the restaurant and their uh, s- server employees, um, that, that is an argument in favor of the idea that they aren't deceiving people. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's what it's predicated on. Because we're deceived all the time when we go to restaurants, is the idea. Well, in right, the same I, way. To the extent it's a deception, it's also deception in restaurants. Yeah, I was going to say it's from a slightly different direction, which is it, it's not deceptive. That assertion is, it's pr- it's, is predicated on the idea that we understand what's going on in the restaurant. Right. Um, and if we don't understand what's going on in the restaurant, we, I, I think another way you could phrase it is, they're actually both deceptive. And so an interesting question would be, where is this, wh- why do people believe this thing that isn't true? Yeah. Um, and, and, but <laughs> I think if, a, if there's a widely held belief, this is, it seems to me somewhat interesting. So this widely held belief and you use words that invite people to indulge in that widely held belief and you know it's not true. 
that the thing you're inviting people to believe is not so, mm-hmm. right? You're deceiving them, are you? And and the fact that the re, that that there's another thing they believe that's also incorrect. Well, that's that other person's problem. That doesn't get that doesn't relieve you of your responsibility to not deceive people. Well, I, th- I think listener Nick's point is that um, is that what that there's a wide practice of viewing tipping right as giving money to an em- employee subject to a minimum which would be subsidized by the employer. And I think the amounts are different with DoorDash. What was it? It was per, it was a per, you know, it's, it's, there's a per delivery subsidized fee. I don't remember what it is. Like Do you a, remember? Right, a minimum that they're guaranteed. That you may well not exceed. I think most people in the, in the restaurant business, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you assume even if, you know, if, if on a $40 bill, your tip would be, you know, eight to $10, right? But even if it's a much lower cost affair, you would be assuming they'd be getting more tips. Per hour. And everyone assumes that I think tipped employees are going to be getting more than $5 an hour in tips. Yes, over the course of an hour on average. Right. So while you might, out. so I don't think it would upset people to know that the employer is is forced to make up for any shortfall. And between, therefore the between first, the seven dollar plus minimum and the two dollar plus right. minimum. And therefore right. the first um the first five dollars that are tipped during the hour um are are basically subsidizing the employer in some you know, could be described that way. And he, when he uses the phrase in his description about collecting tips, I, I take it to, to mean that there, that, that, that is part and parcel of how the, it, we're sure that the employer is standing up to, to their side of the requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe when we think about tips, we think about n- people who are not paid by the hour, a, a, a cab driver, a, a hotel a maid, whatever, where that where that seems like the pure paradigm of a tip, right? Where they really the, their employer doesn't do anything to look into or see or know about or leverage or or subsidize or whatever, right? There's what that person gets paid, and then you give them some money above and beyond that, and that you gave it to them, and they get it from you, and no one else is involved. Yeah, uh, that feels like what the word tip is, and so maybe we mistakenly apply that paradigm to the restaurant case. It doesn't really apply. Okay. I, I just thought the interesting part of that conversation was how, and, and, and in typical oral argument fashion, we're kind of diving into a letter and without kind of completely recapitulating all the groundwork work, which would allow a new listener to understand what we're talking about. <laughs> so they'll just have to go back and listen to one of the, one of the earlier episodes where we talk about DoorDash, but was how something like it was, it was imagining how a company like DoorDash could come up with a policy like this because it seemed to, you know, it was, there was a firestorm in the media about like, basically you're lying. Like everybody thinks it's going to go to the employee or right, in, in this case, to, because, in, in this case to the independent contractor. And right? they think that because of the word tip because, well, and because, well, because of the social practice, it's not clear to me that the mere, you know, well, this is, well, that's we, what the, we can get really, that's what the word we can get really Wittgenstein about the, this. The and, word right. invokes the social practice. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, it, but I mean, it didn't come with a diagram right. that showed you, like, that broke down. It just said the word tip. Right. And, and so, like, it, it seems like they were being, you know, it seems on the surface like they're being deceptive and pocketing money that, you know, they shouldn't have been. Right. But, but you could also tell a story where for really benevolent purposes, or at least to be competitive, they were guaranteeing their drivers uh, this minimum, right, and providing this insurance, and yeah. you can imagine an insurance business, this is part of the conversation, right? It's a secondary market um, where, you know, you give us all your tips and we, you know, it's like a hedge. 
you know, right. basically a swap transaction where and it may, we'll take all the tips, but you're, we're going to guarantee you a certain um, rate per job. Or and something. given the involvement of the of the uh, the person who gave the tip, to the you you could make that in tra- transparent in such a way that it would that it would implode, right? Yeah, no one would tip anymore, right? Um, so we can, so we can understand why they're. Yeah, I think did we we talked about this in terms of moral hazard. This yeah. is like you know, you, if the insurance company's going to pay for whatever, then you're not going to take precautions. Yeah, it's kind of like this is like a third party effect. Like, why tip anybody if you know that there's a big company yeah. which is going to guarantee my tip? So, um, thank you, Nick, for that setting us trying to set us right. Uh, with me, it was not entirely successful because I'm thick headed. But the this paragraph about no, it's just because you're older. Uh, <laughs> 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 so what was Nick's second 52, point? That's L-I-I in Roman numerals. Mm, yeah. Um, so what is his second point? Uh, I, you go. What why, do you got? Why don't you? You have it there. Do you want me to read it? Well, I don't want you to do whatever you want to do. <laughs> I thought you'd absorbed all of these. I mean, see, I, here, here's what I was going to do today. I read here, them. No, here's what I was going to do on your birthday today. I was going to sit back in this little easy chair here yeah. and have you summarize you know do all the legwork um maybe to make up for all the spreadsheets you're not making oh my goodness and, and, and summarize and, and then i would just opine i would just sit back and opine you, you would you would tell me what the listeners are saying and i would say ha huh. and i'd stroke my chin a little bit and i would i would you know i can appreciate the way in which i have through what i now view as promiscuously praise praising observations i made about you in the past i can understand how you could have come to think of that as a gift to me and i just want to assure you that that is not so okay in all seriousness though oh my goodness in all seriousness you know there have been many times where i have a whole little notes document full of like little summaries of all the emails i mean i feel like we don't we don't have this may be shocking to the listeners we do not have a um a, a a list of procedures that's true. Things. We don't. I and have so, also I we, had. We come to mailbag episodes. I think with like with no ex, no firm <laughs> expectations grounded in any kind of practice. I have made I have made lists and things, and yeah, I, I know. I remember sending you one once. Yes, yeah, sometimes to very little effect <laughs> is my recollection. Sometimes you come with lists. Sometimes I do, and sometimes neither of us does. Right. We just come with the feedback, and we ask each other who's going to read this. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I'm making so so rather than ask you another damn thing. No oh boy, I'm going to simply refuse to speak further about the Nick email until you say something about the content of the Nick email. Point number two. This is Nick speaking now on the specialness or not of legal scholarship. Which episode was this referring to? I don't recall. One of our recent ones. Yes. So to listeners, I think for context, you're going to want to go back and listen to the last five episodes. <laughs> uh, no field is entirely theoretical, or at least let us take as given, that one's for you, Joe, for the purposes of this email that the statement is sufficiently true. Most, of course, if you assume something that's not true, anything follows. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, most other fields employ a vast quantity of professionals who are not generating scholarship, rather who apply their, fi- uh, their field through their profession to pressing issues every day. Similarly, judges are not legal scholars. They are, well, most are not. 
some are former legal scholars and some are current legal scholars some, are, some yeah some maintain a teaching and writing practice in addition to being judges that's mm-hmm. true but that that's also true of other fields too so i don't think it it hurts nick's point here yeah you could have someone who teaches in a medical school who also engages yeah. in research and engineering and also sees patients or chemistry has some clinical can, practice exactly yeah. i mean they have startups and yeah so um Judges are not legal scholars, they're practitioners in the field of applied law. And he, he has capital A, capital L there. He does. Their daily need to decide an issue is no different from any other professional in any other field that's responsible for solving a problem with similar inability to defer, for example, practically every other field. A theoretical chemist may be able to reason that a preferred solution is not available, and thus exploring it until more foundational research has been developed, much like a legal academic can do the same, but a professional chemist is unlikely to be offered that option and thus must endeavor to solve the commercial need at hand through some mechanism, even if that's not actually pure chemistry as such. Those who slag on legal scholarship and lump the professional output of judges in that coverage are mixing apples and oranges. However, those who try to defend the system of, quote, true legal scholarship, law review papers, etc., as driven by the constraints of a unique field are similarly woefully mistaken. There's nothing special about legal academia that would make blind peer review inapplicable. So... I, I do take the point, and I think I was the one who was talking about um, how um, uh, the, the judging in particular, and I was assimilating maybe too much law with judging, was kind of unlike um, other kinds of pure sciences and, and indeed other fields of scholarly endeavor, where you could say, huh, we just don't know the answer to that. We need to design some studies or we need to do something else. And you know, asking me to speculate, I'm not, I, I can't speculate. I don't know. Whereas a, a judge is, you know, is dealing with two people who are fighting and society must resolve that dispute somehow. So it has to provide some reason to resolve it, to resolve it one way or the other. Yeah. Like that's how that job works. Right. Is you have to do that. And, and what Nick is pointing out is that, you know, if you're building, oh, I don't know, like a new kind of rocket, um, you may need to solve certain thermal issues that are very difficult to solve, even though like you may say, well, you know what? No one really knows if we, you know, what the characteristics of this material or if we could yeah. build this other kind of material. And therefore, let's just hold off on that. No, you got to, you got to come up with some solution. you could be building a bridge. You could be a structural engineer and you're building a bridge and maybe this kind of bridge hasn't been put over a gap that big before. Mm-hmm. You're trying to make sure, will it work? Will it not work? Well, here we've done this before. We mm-hmm. haven't done that before. Hey, there's this new material available. We could try that. I mean, so you, there are practical things you could do, but there are also unknowns. If you build a bridge to nowhere, does that nowhere immediately become somewhere? Mm. Think about it. Yeah. Mm. So, so yes, there are, pra- there are, there are professionals embedded in a practice environment that, that requires them to act. Uh, and, and they can, they're certainly aware of uncertainties that they confront. They can't defer the action until all those uncertainties are resolved. I don't think anyone can defer them until all of the uncertainties are resolved. But you ma- you manage some of them and you try to work through others to get more information. Well, it's just that if you observe some phenomenon, you may have a, a guess. You may have a theory about how it works, but you just may not be able to say whether that theory has much support or not because you haven't done the experiments necessary to to give you greater confidence in the in the truth of that theory or the predictive power of that theory. So, you know, there are things that a that a, a an academic can do that someone asked to decide and do something right now cannot do, mainly yeah. uh, defer. And and so I take Nick's point that this is not um uh, that that perhaps a legal academic um like a chemistry academic uh, uh, compared to a judge like a professional chemist, right? Right. Uh, that that legal academic also can say, you know what, we just don't know the answer to this. Sure. 
Um, and and, and they, I think a lab scientist, at, you know, a chemist who's working at um, Bristol Myers Squibb, who's investigating the anti-disease efficacy of certain compounds, right? They they are differently situated from someone who's working in a chemistry department doing pure chemistry research. Those are different things. Mm-hmm. And they would respond differently to situations where, well, here's a here's a thing we need to do, or here's a, you know, here's I, I want to answer this question. Well, well, can we can't answer that one yet. So what I don't recall <laughs> is whether Nick's point is is contrary to what we said in a prior episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, he links it at the end to the you know the yeah. the feasibility of um, a blind peer review. Uh, in the context of legal academia as opposed to some other academias. And that sounds more about the point about, you know, an agreed theory of value. Right. And less about, you know, the ability to defer on answering certain questions until more information is available or more work has been done to, you know, actually give shape to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I those sound like two different issues to me. So so I, 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 I certainly take the point that no field has an objective, absolutely agreed upon theory of value. And this includes mathematics, you know, where I came from, I, I, you know, which you might think would have the most objective. Yeah. It clearly doesn't. Right. People people's idea of what counts as an interesting result, They're, even if it's like one of those results that every that, you know, happens to, you know, gather 100 percent from the field. Uh, um, as like earth shattering. Right? So how do they differ? If no, if no field has a has an a, a truly fully objective, I can't remember the precise words you just. Yeah, there is. It was gibberish. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Um. But but do fields differ in what the like the domain over which there's a certain level of uncertainty about value? Yeah, or? I mean, I don't uh, see. But there's so much. I because you might think of in terms of like professional discourses and and scripts and narratives and how those hem in the sense of objectivity. Mm-hmm. So there could be wider and narrower um, frames of value so that um, the things, the things as to the, the things as to which people may disagree as to value um, might be large in number or, or small in number. And um, so, so there's the, like the number yeah. of them and then there's within any one of them, maybe there's a, a range, a width right. issue. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that there's any absolute sense here. I think this is a matter of right. professional culture and academic culture. And in legal academic culture in the United States at this time, within our professional lives, I think, there's the, it, there are a lot of uh, serious contenders of, for theories of value. It's highly pluralistic. Right. In a, and, and not just a, in a sense of like, what are the right questions to be asking? It's also what are the right methods to use? Yeah. And what are the, what are the right types of questions to be asking? Mm. Even? Like it's just a there's, – there's a real openness to um, – I mean not, not felt from any individual perspective. But there is a – in my mind, there's a wide open set of contenders for like the kinds of things that – People who who are hired to teach law students could be writing about, and what is that and would so be valuable? What, is, what and, does that do to the prospect of a peer review process? To to me, one answer to that question could be it would it would produce a a corresponding uh, a correspondingly large number of peer reviewed journals that each of which tended to focus on a sort of a group of questions and methodologies that the people who worked in that sub area found congenial yeah i mean you could imagine just more, yeah, you can imagine that i mean and the fact that 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 um second year law students play 
such a key role in determining kind of the I don't want to say the content because there's usually homes for stuff, but they in they, our non peer review system. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it suggests that there that, that to me is a piece of evidence that we don't necessarily have a great um, and constrained and clear sense of value, that, at least not one that people are willing to stand behind because that, that academics are because if academics had a very strong sense of what constituted great scholarship and that there was a lot of professional agreement about that. Um, they would either take control of the publication process themselves or they would instruct um, the students who would be picking more know, directly, very directly about yeah. what that theory of value is. And we just don't do that. Yeah, we don't do either of those things. No. For the, for the most part. Right. Um, but this this deserves more thought. And, you know, lots of people talk about this kind of thing all the time. Um, um, there's a lot of like navel gazing among academics yeah, about which... this. So, um, and, and, it, and it can be worthwhile. I mean, you got to think about like, what kinds of, you know, as a, in addition to teaching classes, what are we supposed to be doing? And this at its root is that, is that question. I think we have time for one more today. We have two more in the mailbag. I think we have time for both of these. You do. Cause, I do. Still, because the Cameron, listener Cameron's email is encouraging us to do a show. Okay. So he's giving us a show topic. That, that's, oh, okay. I thought you just meant to do the show at all because that was reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> He's encouraging us to do um, an episode on uh, the Title VII SCOTUS case regarding um, the phrase because of sex uh, in um, the anti-discrimination provisions. These are employment discrimination related cases. One is called, uh, I don't know whether it's pronounced Bostock or Bostock. It's someone's family name. So, of course, I can't tell you how it's pronounced. Because um, we speak English rather the, than Spanish or another language right. where there would be no ambiguity about yeah. that. Yeah. The, um, the other um, party name of the fired person is uh, Zarda. Um, so there's the Zarda case, the Bostock case. Um, there are some other important anti-discrimination prov- uh, cases also uh, in, in, that Cameron doesn't mention, but that I think are germane. Now, now, before you get into the detail, the important details here, can I tell you what crossed my mind when I first saw this email from yeah. listener Cameron? Yes. Do you mind? I don't mind at all. Guilt. Guilt? Guilt. Why? Because I, I know listener Cameron, and I immediately went to my flagged email. In, do, you have a, do you have a folder of flagged emails, Joe? How do you keep track of emails? Flagged emails. I'm going to say no because I don't know what you're talking about. Do you ever mark emails? It's like, oh, I need to get back to that. And so you mark them as like flagged or anything like that? No, I don't do that. Okay. What do you, what do you do? You just do it. To do what? To to get back to emails. Like if you have a bunch and you can't get back to all of them at once, what do you do? Well, I try to move things out of the inbox so that what's in the inbox is stuff that generally needs my attention. Mm. Are you inbox zero? No. Mm. Although I think it's an interesting goal. Um, it's an interesting way to think about the goal. I, I don't do folders or anything. I just have one. Yeah, I do, fol- I do folders. Yeah, you're, you're probably better than I am. But, but for emails that I can't get to right away, either because I'm in the middle of, and I can deal with a lot like immediately, but there are right. some where she can take more thought or more response. Yep. I'll flag them. Yep. You can mark them as flagged. And then you can just look at all the emails that you flagged and you can go back and get those eventually. Sometimes I forget to flag or something happens. Mm. And you know how like the most important emails, like the very most important emails are maybe the most likely to go unresponded to because you have the most to say and you want to think about how you're yes, going to say so it. Yes, so I can't do that right now. I need more time. Fl- yeah, and, and, goes, and then they fall down in the stack and they never this get popped off the stack. This is why you got to move stuff out of why, Well, I don't know if it, I don't know For if me, that's how I think about it. So anyway, I felt guilt because I've got an email in my inbox from listener Cameron, which I should have responded to. 
And, but you know, it was, it came at a point where we were doing some stuff with kids and everything, getting ready for college. So I, like, I I didn't have the bandwidth to like get back right away, but it's, but it was delightful to hear from him. Yes. And now I heard from him a second time. So listener Cameron, that's a long way of saying, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, but now the serious part, Joe, please. So it's just that we should have an episode about these cases. They're, they're by, by the way, these are cases that are being argued in just a few weeks. They're being argued right at the start of the term. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, I think they are rightly viewed as very blockbuster cases for Title VII and anti-discrimination law in the employment setting that will, ha- that will reverberate quite a bit because um, they involve people who were fired uh, for being gay people uh the theories that are that are being kicked around in these two cases mm-hmm. uh, bostic and zarda uh, i thought you, you know, said there was one transgender case yeah but well. that's not that's not these two cases okay. that's the other case i don't know the case name for that one it's in a it's in a circuit court of appeals or it's just i think there was a circuit somewhere. split on that one oh, no okay. it's it's a supreme court case but i don't i'm so he he was mentioning the two that were about title seven yeah Employment discrimination, mm-hmm. I think, is what he was referring to. Yeah. Um, there are others as well. They're being argued early in the term. In fact, I think it's that day, like all four of these things or, or yeah. three of these things are getting argued. Um, and he thinks we should have an episode about it, And I totally agree. So we absolutely should. Because now, my memory is we had an episode with Anthony Christ. We did, which is called, one of the people he suggests. Called Because of Sex. Yes. I think that was the title but of it. But it was before, it was not, we did have that, it was a great conversation. Yeah. It was not, I think, in the context of the Supreme Court having granted review and all of the briefing that's gone on and all the positions that are being taken, including by the Solicitor General of the United States, on behalf of the United States, um, the EEOC and its role, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's all now well underway. That's, that's fair. My memory is that our conversation was comprehensive and included all the important arguments one would want to have about this. And so, uh, <laughs> well, C- Cameron can listen to that episode and let us know whether he agrees with you. But, about but that. you think you're going to schedule a, 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 an episode? I think we about should this. have a, an episode about it. I also think people will. This in, require us to listen to and talk about the Supreme Court. It will. Okay, um, but so that, it's a, really about downside. title. It's not about no. the Supreme Court. It's about Title Seven. I kid. I kid. Yeah, it is right. Yeah. Um, so in the interim, there's a wonderful post with lots of links to the briefs, mm-hmm. including to pages of specific argumentation in specific briefs from various parties and amici. Um, in these two employment cases, it's a post by Marty Lederman. It was from this Or past- Stephen Breyer says, a mic eye. Yes. Um, no, he doesn't say that. He says a micus in, in, one, in one setting. It's all very jarring. Um, but this is a post from Marty on the Balkanization blog last Friday. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know him, Marty Lederman. Um, I've never met him, but I've been reading his stuff um, yeah. ever since the, um, I want to say it was in the early days of the Iraq war and the, and the torture memos. Yeah. Um, he, he did a just bang up job kind of constantly summarizing the, yeah. S- the, super, lo- the law there. So. Super detailed. Uh, Lots of um, links to the underlying materials. It mm-hmm. sort of feel like Marty is the guy who brings receipts. This is a phrase I've yeah. been using too much lately. Can't help it. It just keeps coming up. But it's it, he's got the goods. So he's going to lay it out there and he's going to link you to things so you can go look for yourself as, as well, a, which is a very helpful thing yeah, to as do. A, as a lawyer or a law prof, I mean, do you ever get – like if I'm really interested in something, occasionally I'll do a deep dive and you get all the documents together and you kind of put it together and you, and you, you know, you'll see – how it all works. Yeah. You know, and I feel like he just does that all the time. <laughs> right. And so like, you don't have to do the work yourself because Marty's already done it. 
and you can look at it and read it and and, and then he's, decide he's for pointing you to the yeah. key thing and then if you want to dig down another layer of course i think he was at olc yeah um, i think that's right uh, and 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 maybe, maybe and now he's at, now he's at georgetown is he right? still he's still at georgetown right i think so yeah. uh and so i just think his skill set of of legal analysis is kind of top notch um now uh, John Yu, I suppose, could also say he is an alum of OLC, and I wouldn't uh, uh, laud him uh, on the same terms. So maybe I'm just in this particular way. You mean? Yeah, yeah. he reminds me of Steve Vladek. Uh, Marty right. Letterman does. Yeah, I agree. And um, whereas John Yu's legal analysis seems something more like a dumpster fire. Oh my god! Where paradoxically the dumpster is empty. <laughs> like, how is it on fire in there? Are you just saying this based on the torture memos? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, because I'm not familiar with John Yu's scholarship, one of his that. most important acts as an official in the Justice Department. Yeah, one of the most consequential, surely. Well, I, I think it is important to say, you know, I don't like slagging on people, so I think it is important to say that everyone is better than their worst act. Right? A, a, that is un, that is unquestionably true, and that is a thing I have said on this podcast m- more than once. No, people well, are not right. their worst acts; they're also not their best acts. Right? We're all a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. That's. <laughs> Were it not so, we wouldn't put out this podcast, right? There you go. Um, so the other email. So we're going to do that, listener Cameron. Oh, I, so you... I think we're going to have, and I think we will do it after the argument has been had, but before the opinion has been rendered. I, I'm just concerned that we could, uh, that by doing that, we will, of course, dictate the result. Okay. Because yeah, all the clerks are going to listen. The judges, are you referring the justices to that, will listen. That interesting. Um, I think we're going to have too much influence. That Allie Orr, and I can't remember who her co-author is, about oh, this right. piece about like um, briefing around mm-hmm. the atmospheric briefing. I think, I feel like we've talked about that before on this podcast. Maybe it was with Allie or, or others that, that, really, you know, well, I know that we've had conversations about it. I don't know if it's been, whether it's been on air that like the new environment, there, there is just so much more commentary yeah. that comes out so much more quickly so it's not just, you know, one newspaper column, which is influential. It's lots of people arguing lots of things. In great and, detail, and, and with ma- lots of materials. With lots of materials. And, and, and research. And, and many of them with the intention of influencing things. That's or at least fair enough. each other. But and even, like, even without the intention, they might be doing it. So, like, why would you close your eyes at all this stuff? On the other hand, it's not, you know. Anyway. Yeah. So our last listener email uh, from listener Peter um, has this interesting uh, Hypos about A B effects. Uh, this the, is back to our. This was our last conversation with a guest. Really, was was Michelle Meyer? I think it was Michelle Meyer about wow. the A B illusion. Now, do you remember? Can you summarize the A B illusion, Joe? I I cannot summarize that uh, as a term of art. The A B illusion. Well, I just get what's the general idea? Well, the the general idea is that. Um, well, I mean, she, the, her group had findings about whether people approve of this behavior or not, which is different. I think the the underlying phenomenon, um, uh, you can imagine doing a comparison study where you have one way of doing something and a second way of doing something, and you try them both at the same time. You randomly assign people to each group, and you just see which one is better. Which one worked better. And then you could choose which one worked better on the basis of that evidence. Alternatively, you say, oh, you know, just pick option B. Just do one of them and do it for everybody and do it all at once without having figured out which and one works better. The re- maybe the reason is I've been a professional for at this for a long time, and it just feels to me that B is probably better. Right. In my experience, intuitively, B seems better. Yeah. So we choose B. That's another way of doing things, which at least has the air of expertise and in which you have not subjected the population on which you are working to to an experiment. Right. And what is interesting about it is 
or one thing that's interesting about it is it seems like the second route is like seems more ordinary and less kind of radical or eggheadish or whatever it might be as you would describe it but it's actually the more sweeping and weird thing to do when you stop and think about it because you're implementing it for everybody even though it might be the worst of the two options Mm -hmm. and you're not doing anything to check about whether it is or isn't the better of the two options right so it's like it's not evidence driven either even though it's more sweeping and affects more people in that sense and so kind of one of the puzzles is why do we need why why is consent such a value for this a b testing where we don't require that for these sweeping changes right that are done without evidence and without testing and without and without results which will improve the lot of everybody yeah i mean you could you do retrospective studies of a bunch of people making such decisions sure you know all right Please proceed, Governor. Oh, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you did. Uh, so he was listening to these discussions we have with Michelle Meyer, and he was thinking about the um, the sort of fun hero narratives in a show like Star Trek with Captain Picard or Captain Kirk, these two very famous captains of the Starship Enterprise at different points in its mm-hmm. uh, fictional Fi- history. Yeah, fictional. Like, yeah. I think we should emphasize they're not uh, real people. Quite true. Okay. And... Um, and the the way that they do, um, he says you're a Star Trek fan. Is that true? I think I am a fan of the franchise. I think would you they, would you say you're a Trekkie? No, I, but oh. I would say I'm a fan of the. What's franchise. the difference for you? Um, I, I've never been to a con, mm-hmm. never been to a Star Trek convention, mm-hmm. and I think you can't really call yourself a Trekkie. If I have been, been to Dragon Con, and there were Trekkies there, but I did not wear the ears. And I, and I don't think we were talking about whether you were a Trekkie. We could now. And now uh, you've said you've been to a con. No, you, but... but you, didn't, you weren't dressed in regalia. I, I was establishing a foundation then to turn it around to you to ask whether you've ever been to a con... At, at which, which Trekkies Trek, were present, it, even if it wasn't a Star yeah, Trek convention. And, you know, no. and, and then whether you, whether you... So if you go to a con that is a more general con, maybe even Gen Con, hmm, uh, and, and there are Trekkies there, and you delight in their presence and maybe even attend a panel... Does that make you a Trekkie or do you have to go specifically for Star Trek purposes? I think, would that make me a Trekkie? I think if I'm not wearing, if I'm not engaged in any cosplay or wearing any, like a, even like a pin that looks like Mm -hmm. it's a communicator badge from Mm -hmm. the next generation. Like that juror did that time. Right. um, uh, If I'm not doing any of those things, but I enjoy their presence and delight in their presence and maybe even go to a panel, I think I'm, I think I'm Trekkie adjacent, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I'm Trekkie. Hmm. This is, that's how I would use those words. Do you have? Be interested to hear how they would use those words. Do you like, have any like plush tribbles on your desk or anything like I that? I do not. I do not have that. Do you have a model of the what is it? NCC seventeen oh one. Do I have that right? Is that that it? is yes? It's NCC seventeen oh one. Is the Starship Enterprise in the original series? And so. I'm no Trekkie. I agree with I, although you. Although I You're did not. watch, you know, my my wife and I watched uh, Next Generation. When it was on, we had a good time watching that. I think it was in syndication by the time we really got around to seeing yeah. a lot of them. And then we watched uh, a little bit of that Voyager. We watched, um, didn't do the DS9, even though I think that was, everyone says that's the better show. I enjoyed DS9 quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, there but, was that, uh, that one that Scott, what was his name? Scott Bakula. Is that the actor who played? That sounds right. The captain in it, like that was a prequel kind of thing. Yeah, which I, it was panned, right? I mean, people didn't yeah, like it. I don't remember that doing particularly well, but. Quantum I, Leap, I guess. And of course, as a kid, I think part of this is like the original series was popular. I think it, it was in syndication at the time. I was a, I was, I was a kid. And, um, there, and I knew some kids in school who were Trekkies. 
But for me, I was always a little disappointed that it wasn't Star Wars. Mm. No, I think... Like, this would be better if it were Star Wars. That's I think our I ability thought. to have the conversation we've been having for the last few minutes would, for other people, say that we are Trekkies. Really? Like, we knew enough about this stuff to be able to carry on this way. But I don't view that as sufficient. No. Because you know real Trekkies. It's yeah. Like, I it, feel like we're just engaged in cultural literacy. It's kind of like, honest. are we nerds? <laughs> like, you know, for the, if you just pick a person at random in the U.S. population right. and you tell them about, like, our habits, they would say, I would say oh, are absolutely, we nerds. I wouldn't say this is about are we nerds. No, 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 no. You're, uh, nerds. Like, a random person in the population apprised of our habits would say, absolutely, those, those two are just real nerds. Mm. But if you take someone maybe in academia or in, in, in maybe, maybe even practicing lawyers or you just take our listeners – would, would you think, would they say we're nerds? They might say, they might be more likely to say, yeah, they're geeks about some things. Mm. But I don't think they'd say we're, I, in other words, I think nerd is a relative term, Joe. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. I don't know. I hear what you're saying. Uh, the examples here in the email are about the, the kind of, uh, as he puts it, the one in a million best case scenario is what they bank on every time. Like, so they'll, they'll say, let's stay here until we get every last person off that planet. Where, in fact, maybe what they should do is like, you know what? We've, we, <laughs> if we run the huge risk by staying here, we're, we're really endangering all these other people who are already on the ship. We need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. They don't do that. And it would feel like a letdown if they did that. And if the chances of, of, of it working out is one in 10 to the sixth, and you've got, say, now, of course, the people in the show, within the fictional universe, yeah. don't know how many episodes there are. Right. Right. That's, that information is hidden to them. Yeah, but we know, like, if it's, if it's episode two yeah. of season three, what's the chance that everyone is going to die? It's Not zero. One in 10 to the sixth raised to the power of the number of episodes. <laughs> Right? I mean, to, to the extent the episodes are independent, and this is a key point because, of course, they are independent because this is – many of the Star Trek, at least before this new one, which I haven't really seen. Mm -hmm. My wife really likes it, but I, I haven't really seen it. Um, it was in the old, like, serial tradition where, like, okay, the episode's over. Everything basically resets. Right. Right. Maybe we'll mention stuff that happened in another episode, but no, nothing it's, depends. It's not quite so, as resetting as Friends is. Uh-huh. Where it truly is every episode really does go back to zero for the new episode, which mm -hmm. is very much about syndication. That, that's the one where the, all, the, all the kids lived in a coffee shop and somehow were like uh, squatting in a nice apartment in Manhattan. And yeah, they, they, well, they had millionaire-level apartments. And they all slept you, together, right? Yeah. Uh, later, I think. They were, I mean, not at once. Okay, well, that, I mean, that was the, that was the <laughs> old person's perspective on Friends, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I've sort of lost Although the thread I, I was, here. I was a Friends person. I was in that generation. I, I mean, I, we, I did watch the show. Did you watch the show? I did. I did. I'm not a. I was not a Friends completist by any means. Yeah. But I did see many episodes of the show. I thought the Lisa Kudrow character Phoebe was uh, unbelievably awesome mm -hmm. and really made it worth it. Not a surprise. A lot of the other people were just seemed very complainy, but Phoebe was a delight. I'm surprised by its resurgence. It's really popular right now. It is super popular. And on at Netflix, the time, I was I was thinking even at the time it was the it was on the air. Unlike Seinfeld. As to which, maybe I'm just totally wrong. This shows how, maybe I'm just totally wrong about these things. I felt like Friends is, okay, so people are enjoying that's super popular right now. But like, you can tell that the kind of humor here and the, the laugh tracks and all that, that this is, you know, this is of its moment and it's right. not going to be long lasting. And yes, and it will vanish like the... And, and now look, there's this resurgence and a lot of students don't know any Seinfeld jokes. Yeah. So what the hell do go, I know? Yeah, go figure. Yeah. 
Um, what, what are you going to do, Joe? I don't know. I've sort of lost the thread. <laughs> it's almost like someone keeps interrupting you with, in, in, with irrelevant things. <laughs> this is about the one in a million stuff. Yeah. The, the, um, in, by way of explaining why it is that, that policy changes mm-hmm. get adopted in this, in, in a way more radical, non-evidence-driven, oh, just pick one, and of course we wouldn't need anyone's consent, and as opposed to the A-B model where you would actually test stuff. So I'm just going to read this middle paragraph. Okay. Conversations with Schellmeyer, one thing you uh, three talked about was our discomfort with knowing that we're giving some people the short end of the stick, even if everyone benefits in the long run. In the A-B test example of two different 401k letters, we're presuming there's some difference between A-B, so we have to accept that some people are going to miss out the benefit that their peers are getting. If, on the other hand, we just let the CEO search, uh, switch policies on whim, at least everyone misses out on benefits equally. It seems to me like you're all suggesting that we intuitively distrust the A-B test because of the sense that some people are being selected to lose through no fault of their own, which may also be true when the CEO acts on a hunch and switches, but there, are, is, but there the loss is a little bit masked, so it may not raise our hackles. Thinking about psychology of Star Trek audience made me think one could flip that point. The compliment of not wanting to confront that some people get the inferior option is not wanting to let go of the possibility that everyone gets the best option. So there's this sort of hero dynamic going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, th- uh, and and that's easier to do when you also, when you never run the counterfactual, right? You never actually find out what would have happened if you'd done the other thing. Right. Um, you know, would it have been even better? Uh, okay, going back to the paragraph. So in addition to the loss aversion, equal treatment intuitions influence our snap judgments about A-B testing. It's also a bit of utopian imagination, a feeling that taking a risk and betting it all on a hunch will work out in the way that's most narratively satisfying. I think there's really something quite interesting there. Yeah. That are, are, we, have these, we have these narratives in a grab bag that are available to us all the time in all these different situations. And the, 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 the kind of the hero's success story about, oh, you know, they risked it and they won. Right. It, wasn't it great? And look how it did all these great things for people. And, and that there are stories like that. They feel good. Uh, they can feel fun. Um, and, and maybe when we think about uh, sort of people leading an organization and picking policy for that organization, it feels like, ah, it's like the captain of the starship saying, we're going to get everyone out of here. Let's go. And we're going to, I've got a belief. I've got a confident belief that this is the right thing to do. So let's do it. Right. Uh, yeah. It can feel, it, it sort of builds a kind of team feeling. It seems also to be consistent with uh, how, how the environments in which we likely evolved, right, the, that, that have exerted the most influence on our, the evolution of our minds, right? That like, you know, relatively smallish groups where we follow a leader and that leader is supposed to be wizened and, um, and to take into account the group's history and, you know, we, we all do better if we all march to the same beat, mm. you know, against other groups and or with other groups, or as the case may be. So but. it's the evolutionary argument that groups that, that contained individuals who were inclined to accept that approach to life did better competitively than groups who had more unruly, less sort of leader-inclined right. 
behaviors. I mean, or, look, I mean, the, dispositions. Is that would that be the evolutionary? The, the armchairs on this armchair evolutionary. They're, they're huge. Like I can't even. I know they're up, amazing. Up they're growing yeah. right before my eyes. It's just kind of wow. <laughs> Um, uh, but that would be a that would be a sort of sociobiological approach, right? Would right. be to say, well, look look at the thing that's very very common, and then ask whether in a, in the in competitive fitness terms, would people who had had that characteristic, can you imagine them out competing people who lacked that characteristic, or even cooperative fitness terms? So I, I don't know. I mean, it's just that um, I think it's very unlikely that we have experience or that we spent thousands of years growing up in a situation where, um, you know, people who are facing, uh, or, or, or critters as, as the case may be, who are facing dire threats, uh, ran a B tests of any kind. <laughs> right. I mean, just, the idea is, you know, they use heuristics, experience, right. um, uh, and, and, and strong leader trust. I mean, systems of trust are important. Sort of like str- strong, a strong leader can, can lead us to success kind of approach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that will make that work better is if the people who are participating in it view it as a good thing. Or right? in, inclined toward following people who seem wise or what have you. Yeah. So there's but, a, so there's, the group can establish a level of cohesion right. with that approach that they wouldn't establish if the group were composed of people who like had very mixed feelings about that way of doing stuff and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would, so I'm just kind of speculating here, wildly speculating. Uh, it's that, really that perhaps fun. Some of I'm this, getting windburn with the wildness of the, <laughs> that, of the speculation. That perhaps what, it, what, what attracts us to narratives and dramas about captains uh, in space and, and other kinds of leaders is maybe the same uh, sort of faculty we have for being attracted to real leaders and you know, I mean, one would expect the narrative to reflect our kind of inner dialogues about these things. I don't know. I yeah, mean, I'm, I'm just kind of speculating. Yeah, it seems like a not unreasonable speculation. Do you notice that this listener was um, from your alma mater? Uh, he did mention that toward the end of the email. That is true. And he didn't say we couldn't mention that. So it, that is true too. Um, so St. John's College just keeps coming up. Yeah, you know, St. John's College. It's been a long, college. long advertisement for St. John's College. This is, yes, and, and we're running on many years now of advertising, and no one knew it at the time. We've been just laying the groundwork. I love it, and um, and maybe on the final episode, which is the St. John's theme song. I wonder if there is, I'm sure there is like a, a, a college song. That, that thing they all sing at convocation. I don't remember What's the, the name first of that thing? thing about it. It was beautiful. I had tears. Really? Well, partly because I was saying goodbye to my, <laughs> goodbye yeah, to I my child. That I was have experiencing the first, the first of two no, I don't child, you know. I feel bad now. I don't remember. There is, there's got to be some sort of college No, it's a, song. they do sing that song. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like that was really meaningful for them. Hmm. I think it's, you know, it's St. John's, St. John's. My heart is with St. John's by the river. You're just making stuff up now. By the river in old Annapolis, St. John's, St. John's, St. John's. Mm. Is that how it goes? Oh, my, oh, College Creek. Mm. That's, I was trying to think of that. Oh, College Severn's Creek. Leak. <laughs> College Creek is a little tributary right. off the Severn River. And, um, and Leak and Creek rhyme. Right. So I think I did, I think I did a solid just there. The Naval Academy is bigger. It is. You're right. But we do things with rigor. St. John's, St. John's, St. John's. Nice. You really brought that in for yeah. a landing. They can. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I they can we, have it. That's free. Yeah. I think we got to call it. Yeah. We got to wrap things up. But 
you know, it's been two weeks. So I feel like pe- we, we owe it to the people um, to, you know, and if we can't deliver on quality, we can at least deliver on quantity, Joe. I think that's true. And we need to have realistic goals. So, um, so I guess one thing we promised in this episode is that eventually we're going to get back to talking about law in a serious way. Because you mentioned the Title Seven thing. Mm, yes, that's true. And so maybe that's when it will be safe for some people to start listening again. <laughs> Although I love these conversations. I do too. This is, this is the Joe birthday show. Maybe the, per- the perfect illustration. Should the show title here just be 54? That has a certain elegance and slickness to it. Um, should, should it be Joe's birthday or should it be, oh no, I'm sorry, 52. Yeah, I yeah, was going to say, I, yeah, the yeah. reason it shouldn't be 54 is so that's not actually the right well, number. Except, now I've said it, so it could be. Yeah. You see, oh, then it has this, like, it has this other layer to it. it has yeah, this, yeah, you're, you're it building has, in the layers there. <laughs> um, or it could be L-I-I. Oh. Because I, I did say that, and of course now I've said it again. Now don't cut that out. No. You've got to leave all this in. Yeah, well, this is all this conversation it's all about in the show. This is all in the show. Yeah. There's no editing. This one's going right out oh, again nice. without wow. me like doing stuff that usually makes it sound better because we have these mics that pick up everything and so they hear the reflection. So yeah, I'm not going to take any of that out. And Good. this is just going to be um because I feel like people need it right away. Yeah. I feel Go like this this is if the show isn't fresh, it's 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 stale. <laughs> those are the options. Yeah, those those are the options. <laughs> so, do you have a final judgment on what the show should be called? Of course, no. I, I may choose otherwise, but I think right. it should be called 54. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, that's fine. What do you think? I think that's really fun. Hmm. But, but to be clear, you're not 54. At least you're, not rep- you're representing that you're not 54. I am not at this time, when we're doing this recording, 54 years old. I, I am not. So at least listeners... To my can... knowledge, people have been... Maybe they deceived me about the first few years of my life and right. falsified several records and all that. But... And you might be deceiving us now, but... At least That's what listeners can conclude is that you were you are representing that you were fifty two. Yes, hmm. I am representing that. Okay, so two times two times thirteen. The other one is going to be, of course, um, fifty four. Is uh, um, uh, what is that? That's three cubed times two squared, right? So there, there, there's nothing interesting about either one in particular. You know, we ha- we only have. I'm forty seven, mm-hmm. which is prime. I think three cubed times two squared is pretty interesting, actually, now that you say it. Why is that? Time, and it's also times one of the first as well. Hmm. The three cubed times uh, two squared times uh, one to the first. I, you remember that thing I said about nerds earlier? <laughs> yes. But, but I, I don't know. My, I, just, whole I, just, I started thinking distinct- about numbers, and, and we don't live that long, and so we only have so many ages, and, and only some of those ages are actually interesting numbers. Yeah, it's true. And I don't remember the whole geek-nerd difference in terms of there's a John Hodgman riff on, like, nerds means this and geeks means that. Geek is someone who's just, like, authentically interested in a particular kind of thing. Oh, right? okay. So, you're right, so it's, you're an, right. it's a certain kind of – it's a and certain valence. And in my mind, that had gotten crossed to it's nerds. A, I thought yeah. nerds was that, I and mean, that's what geeks are. It's a certain valence on the word enthusiast. Mm. Like it's more than just being an enthusiast because it, it has kind of a collective thing. Whereas to it. nerd has a more specific interest about it's like more topically defined. No, I, I no, I think geek is more topically defined. Hold on, like you, you can be a star, about you can be passionate. a Star Trek geek. No, I, I think nerd is more like a dispositional description. Okay. Well, I'm like, going to stop listening to you about this, and I'm going to go back and find that John Hodgman thing. Well, I, what does he I know? Well, I want to hear what he said about it. I don't want to hear what you said about oh it because I find what you're saying about it right now to be confusing and, and unilluminating uh, at best. 
at best. I think nerd is a dispositional description, whereas geek is about is about is a description of one's uh, inclination toward enthusiasm for particular. Okay, topics. I'm going to say only one more thing about this, which is that it might not have been John Hodgman, it might have been Will Wheaton, but in either event. I think both, uh, you, both you trust either them more of those be more illuminating on this oh. score than you are or have been or will be, and I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm hurt. Whatever. I'm hurt. That's, this, your, okay. that's your issue. All right. 54 is going to be our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> you can. I made a promise to yeah, the people. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We'll have at least a few more. Okay. All right. Bye. <laughs>